Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Barry Motives. We are so happy you're choosing to spend this time with us today. Yes. Thanks again for checking us out this week. And if it's your first time, welcome. Yes. Welcome. We love new listeners. If you checked out our Facebook page, then you know about Christy's fascinating dirtbag details. The most interesting ones I find are always about the profile of a serial killer. Yeah. There's some wild facts in there. If you haven't checked them out, you should. We post every Monday. It's always so disturbing to me to find out how many traits that serial killers have in common. It is wild. It doesn't mean that those traits make you a serial killer, but the combination of those traits makes you more likely to be a serial killer. Which is so crazy to me. It is. And today we're going to talk about Keith Hunter Jesperson, the happy face killer. And I don't think that you can get a more stereotypical background on a dirtbag murderer. Oh, we're going classic serial killer today. Absolutely so classic. So much so that when I was researching this case, I had to wonder if some of his claims were actually made up. Oh, like he read a book about serial killers and then claimed to have all those traits? Yeah. Some of his reasons and descriptions for his crimes and his feelings are like reading a profiler's textbook. Oh, wow. That's how much he fits the mold of the classic serial killer that we all know now. Either way, it's scary if he's pretending or not. Yeah. So I'm curious what you think of him when we get to the end of this case. If you think he's a profiler's dream or if you think he was just reinventing himself to fit the mold with the recounts of his crimes. Hmm. Because some of them do want to just be the biggest, the baddest. Yeah. And so they will embellish. They'll claim things that they haven't even done. And that I think you'll see in today's case. Interesting. He casts a light on his childhood that makes him look like more of that stereotypical serial killer. If you were to listen to Keith's accounts, you will be thinking, how could he turn out any different than what he did? But his family tells a little bit different of a story. Huh. And so at the end, I'm curious of what you think. Okay. Well, let's get into it then. So because Keith has been so forthcoming about his life and his crimes, quite a bit is known about him. And interestingly, I didn't think he was talked about as much as his other contemporary serial killers. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's as well known as others. No. And this is a plight that's plagued this middle child for all of his life. (laughs) Middle child syndrome. It's Uh real. (laughs) I was a middle child. (laughs) I am a middle child. (laughs) It's not easy. (laughs) It's always left him seeking recognition. He was just never really noticed or taken seriously by anybody. Oh, that's because you're a dirtbag. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's not because you're a middle child. Just kidding. (laughs) Unfortunately, though, this allowed him to kill as many as he did. He recounts his murders oscillating between claiming ownership on one to more than 166 murders, depending on his need for attention. 166? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I hope that's a lie. Yeah. Today, we'll stick to the ones that he's been solidly connected to. But it just goes to show you, you could never trust a dirtbag's word. True. So Keith Hunter Jesperson was born on April 6, 1955 in Chilliwack in the province of British Columbia, Canada. Oh, another Canadian case. Yeah. Well, not quite. 
Okay, starts in Canada. Starts in Canada. He was raised by Gladys and Leslie, or Les Jesperson. He had two brothers and two sisters, and he held the dreaded position of the forgotten middle child. Aww. Leslie had served time in the Canadian Merchant Navy during World War II, and after worked hard manual labor jobs and was an inventor of sorts. Keith described his dad as a domineering alcoholic. His mother, Gladys Jesperson, was a homemaker, and she had been raised in a home where sex or even bodily functions were taboo topics, a tradition she continued in her own household. Oh, no. It's shocking how common that is, even today in some households, Mm -hmm. that you don't even like, you don't make fart jokes. No. You don't. None of that. According to Keith, his father and his siblings teased him mercilessly. When his dad and siblings learned of Keith's accusations, they would later deny them. Oh. His dad did admit that he didn't consider a good strapping child abuse. It was in the time where you could strap your child and that was just teaching them the way. Right. You even got strapped at school. Oh, and Keith did. Oh. Yeah. Leslie was a firm believer that these things were just simply the way that was done at the time. His siblings, his brothers especially, felt that he was just so odd, it was human nature just to tease him. Oh, come on. Yeah. That's not nice. No, not at all. There's never an excuse to be a bully. Sorry. But the teasing would continue at school too. Keith's size was their main target. And it does seem that his size was a bit of an anomaly. By the age of 12, he was almost six feet tall and over 200 pounds. Whoa. I was wondering, is he really big or is he really little? (laughs) (laughs) No, he is huge. And he would eventually earn the nickname Igor. Oh, no. Yeah. That's what his brothers would start. Trust your brothers to come up with the wretched nickname for everyone to tease you about. It's true. But they thought it was just good natured fun. Yeah, because they weren't the ones being picked on. Absolutely. Throughout his education, Keith would have academic, social, and discipline problems. He recalls having no friends as a young child, and everyone either picked on him or ignored him completely. Even at home, Keith felt singled out and treated differently than his siblings. His father would reserve the harshest punishments for him whenever he was noticed by him. From the age of 11, his father had made him pay for room and board. (gasps) 11? Mm Mm-hmm. What? Yes, so he would have him work alongside him, and then he would demand that he had to pay for his room. But didn't make the other kids. Nope. And this continued until his mother stepped in and pointed out that it was unfair because none of the other children were made to do so. Whoa. So if you ever had any suspicions that your dad hates you the most out of all the kids, that would confirm it. Yeah. That is a totally a dirtbag move by dad. It is. And mom is corroborating the story. Mm-hmm. So it really happened. Yeah, it happened. Everybody in their family says it happened. Eleven. Eleven. Can you imagine? No. My kid owe me a lot of money. Yeah. Melissa's youngest is eleven. I can't imagine her (laughs) charging him rent. Well, I can't imagine making him do the hard manual labor that his father made him do either. To earn the money. Mm -hmm. The whole situation does seem a little bit off. He was definitely targeted. Yeah. The relationship between Keith and his father was not a good one. Because Keith was a lonely child and felt powerless in his real life, he developed an active imagination and would create worlds that he was in control of. Oh, that's quite common Mm -hmm. as a coping mechanism. Absolutely. He also took up some familiar hobbies of future serial killers. Keith, as a child, liked to set things on fire around his home and in the woods. Oh, okay, arson. We're starting right Mm -hmm. away. And there is a lot of documentation of his torture of animals. I knew that's what you would say next. (laughs) Just because you told me it was classic. Yeah. Textbook. 
so classic. And most of these recounts come from Keith himself. Even after all of his crimes and once he's incarcerated, he is almost proud when he describes the torture that he inflicted on animals. That's disgusting. Mm -hmm. Was anybody else able to confirm that that's what he did and that he set these fires? Yeah. Okay, so he's not embellishing then. No, not at this stage. It's more the abuse from his father that I think. Okay. That might be a little bit of an embellishment, but maybe it's not. I don't know. But when you're the only kid at 11 having to work and pay rent, rent. it's probably not. And maybe this is why the profilers have this mold that serial killers come from. Right. And setting fires is a way of getting attention and hurting animals is a way of getting out your frustrations. Yes. And it comes through very clearly that that's why Keith tortured animals to get out his frustration. And he liked to control the fire to just have that power. Of starting it. Mm -hmm. But as anybody knows, you cannot control fire. You can control where you start it, but... But he could cause destruction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would make him feel powerful. Yeah. At a very early age, as young as five, Keith would capture and torture animals. He enjoyed watching animals kill each other as well, but the feeling he got when he killed them was better. It made him feel powerful and in control. At five years old? Mm Mm-hmm. That's little. That's kindergarten. So little. This hobby started when his dad would show him how to get rid of stray animals that were a nuisance around their home. Oh, that's terrible. It was one of the only things that his father and him would ever bond over. Keith felt like his dad encouraged his extermination efforts around the house, and it was a way that Keith could feel that he was pleasing his father. Oh, that makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Les would deny it in an interview later in life. He said that he did teach him how to get rid of stray cats, but only by drowning them. And he didn't encourage the torture at all. Only by drowning them. (laughs) Like that is torture, Les. (laughs) But that's a common practice. It is. Right? Especially for the time. Yeah, I guess. And so he would have just been teaching his son how to take care of... A nuisance. A nuisance. Yeah. Like shooting a gopher or... That's right. When my mom was young, the farmers would pay them, I believe, for bringing in the gopher tails. Yeah. So it was just what was done. Oh. But Keith would take it one step further. He would capture birds and stray cats around the trailer park where he lived, and he would severely beat the animals and then strangle them to death. Yeah, that's up close and personal. Mm -hmm. Most little kids at five would be crying if they saw something like that happen, let alone inflicting that on an animal. Well, it sounds like he had this kind of dual personality where he was super sweet with some animals, like he would bring home birds with broken wings and try to take care of them. And he had a dog himself named Duke, and he was super sweet to them. But then there were other animals that he chose to torture. Hmm. I wonder if it corresponded with what was happening in his life at the time yeah and even through adulthood he continues this pattern really Mm -hmm. of harming animals yeah his torture of animals as a child would evolve and he would enjoy bashing in gophers heads with shovels and he would nail cats to boards and then throw knives at them that is disturbing that is so sad so disturbing yeah Dogs at the time were off limits because he had his own dog, Duke, who he considered to be his only friend. Well, how are alarm bells not going off? That's like, like my next sentence. <laughs> What's your sentence? <laughs> like, how did nobody pick up that this was like a psychopath in the making? Yeah. Like, he sounds like a terror running around murdering all these animals and torturing them to death. He got a reputation around town that this kid is not a good kid to hang out with. Yeah, he's going to kill all the animals in your barn and then he's going to light the sucker on fire. Mm-hmm. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. 
This is the start of like a terrible movie. <laughs> he's just a little off. But a he, little off. <laughs> but he blames his dad completely for all of it. And I'm thinking, I don't know. I think you're, you're off all by yourself there. But I'm curious if you're going to tell us about like any type of psych assessments or like was there things going on right from this young age? Because that's not your standard behavior of a five-year-old. No, there were no psych assessments done. Right. And that's what I feel like should have been done. I think oh, there was something absolutely medically going on here. A lot of people talk about how he was just odd and off. Yeah, he and... sounds like a psychopath, honestly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it seemed that torturing animals just gave him more sense of power. Oh, yeah. So he had to include the torturing and the killing of the animals because he gained more power from that. Yeah, I could see that. And that's why his torturing of animals just kept evolving because he wanted more and more power over them. Right. Keith recalls from an early age that he often thought about what it would be like to do the same thing to a human. Oh, yeah. It's a natural progression. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's one of those serial killer markers. That's why I'm surprised that he continues to torture animals after he's killing people. It is interesting. That is. But that's how he tries to control himself. Ah. Around the age of 10, his parents encouraged him to play with a boy named Martin, their friend's son. The two would often get into trouble together, and Keith often felt that he was punished for many of the things that Martin had done, and that Martin purposely shifted the blame onto Keith. Frustrated by this injustice, Keith violently attacked Martin until his father had to pull him off. He had beaten Martin unconscious <gasps> and later claimed that it had been in his intent to kill him. Wow. Could That's you imagine a 10-year-old beating another 10-year-old unconscious? No. No, I can't. But remember, he's got size going for him. He has size and aggression, and he's not scared to go for the juggler, so to speak, right? No, not at all. Yeah, he gets enjoyment out of this torture. Mm -hmm. And after killing all those animals, he would know the way to do it. And this wouldn't be the last time that Keith felt that he was punished for someone else's mistakes, or the last time that he would feel justified to try and kill another person. About a year later, Keith attempted to drown a boy at a public pool by holding his head underwater, only stopping when the lifeguard pulled him away. <gasps> so that's two attempted murders by age 11. Mm -hmm. He was just impulsive and had this urge for vengeance. Wow. I'm just shocked that even at 11, like, why was nothing done? He's well, tried to kill two kids. No one's going to do anything about it? As a parent... Of this hulking mass of a kid that's impulsive and gets into trouble all the time, what would you do? You would look for some outside help. Well, for Les and Gladys, their answer was to teach him the discipline of boxing. They had run a <gasps> boxing club in Chilliwack, and to them, it seemed like a good idea to channel Keith's energies. So now let's let him get skilled at punching mm -hmm. and inflicting pain. Yep. In hindsight, it would just give him a significant advantage over all of his future victims. Yeah, you just made him more dangerous. I get the concept. I totally do. Put him in something where he can channel that rage and get that out. Yeah, and it is a discipline, right? Like you have to control yourself. and Right. Yeah. His other physical pursuits of wrestling and running would also help him in his future crimes. Okay, something like running. I can understand that. You can run from the time the sun rises till the time the sun sets if you need to. You're not going to hurt anyone doing that. Yeah. And Keith would use that outlet later on. So it sounds like he actually tries to stop killing then. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. The only friends he did acquire were ones with similar interests in torturing animals and vandalizing properties. The ones whose parents didn't care where they were or what they were doing. That's just wild. How many kids are running around our neighborhood torturing little animals and doing all these things? Like, that does not seem like a common thing to me. No, 
But there was some people that he would hang around with, ones that really didn't create a friendship bond. They were just having similar interests of these horrible, horrible things. Wow. At the age of 11, while hanging out with some other like-minded boys, they were approached by an older man who asked them if they wanted to learn about sex. He took them out to a barn where he had everyone strip and there he molested some of the boys. Keith watched as others were raped, but ran away before he was raped as well. Oh, how traumatic for all of those boys. Mm -hmm. What a dirtbag. Keith was disgusted by what had happened, and it tainted how he would view sex. Oh, for sure it would. Mm -hmm. In 1967, the Jesperson family moved to Yakima, Washington for a new job for Les. He had become quite successful in the hops business. Keith missed the opportunity to start over, instead falling into the wrong crowd again, and in the seventh grade, Keith began shoplifting to impress his new friends. When he entered high school, it was a repeat of his earlier school experiences. He had difficulty making friends and was mostly ignored. But Keith found an outlet when he was old enough to drive. The newfound freedom allowed him to venture farther from town and he could seek out bigger animals to hunt and torture. And that's how he would take out his frustrations with the world that he felt was unfair to him. He completely blamed others for his lonely situation. Hmm. You can just see him spiraling already. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that it seemed like from an early age, he recognized that torturing animals was a coping mechanism for him. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not a lot have that introspectiveness. Mm -hmm. Keith was described by classmates as having a split personality. He could be charming and nice, almost caring in one situation, and then would flip a switch and he would fly off the handle or instantly become extremely socially awkward. So no wonder he didn't have friends. They were probably scared of him. Yeah. While no one could put their finger on what made him odd, all agreed that there was just something about him that was off. And that's why most stayed away. Huh. He just gave off a vibe that was not a good one. Right. There are reports that he could turn on the charm when he needed to. He just couldn't sustain it. Right. His true colors eventually had to show through. Mm -hmm. But I've experienced that before where I've met someone and the hair on the back of my neck literally stood up. Like you just sometimes get that vibe from somebody. Yeah, and it sounds like Keith gave off this vibe. Did you read anywhere that he had bedwetting? Because that's one of the classic symptoms, too, is bedwetting into their later years. No, he didn't bedwet. Later on, in one of his statements, he actually says two out of three ain't bad. Because those are the top three. Yeah, Yeah. the trifecta. No, no bedwetting for Keith. He does claim that he had one sexual experience at 14 while on vacation to Newfoundland in Canada. An older woman on a beach mistook him for being older because of his size, and he says that she raped him repeatedly. Up until that point, I see your eyes going, wait a minute. Yeah, I have questions. (laughs) Remember, this is Keith's account. Yeah, because if it's multiple times and he's a hulky guy, it's just surprising that he wouldn't be able to beat off when he's so vicious. An older woman. Yeah, that seems a little fishy. Mm Mm-hmm. Up until this point, he had found the woman's body and anything related to sex disgusting. That's what he had been taught in his home, right? That's true. And he had that experience with that predator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so up until this point, he had really no sexual feelings at all. That's what he claimed. He had even been teased by his father and brothers because of his aversion to anything sexual. Which is kind of funny because they're not allowed to talk about that in the house. And then now the dad and brothers can tease them about it? Outside of the house was a different matter. True, when Gladys, mama ain't around. Yeah, Gladys controlled the inside of the house and uh. it sounds like Les had quite a humor. 
Oh, gee. Keith recounts one time where he learned a poem that had a sexual innuendo in it. And he didn't understand the meaning of it. But he told it when he was around his dad's friends. And his dad found it absolutely hilarious and would have him retell it every time they were in a group of people. Mm. So it sounds like Les had a, a sense of humor about sex, but not so much Gladys. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. But something changed when Keith had this forced experience. It awakened his sexual urges. So he was forced to have sex with this woman, but then he realized what an orgasm was. But I thought he said he was disgusted. He had been up until this point. Huh. But once he had orgasm, so she forced him to have sex. And once he had orgasm, then it was like this whole new world and he could think of nothing else. Ah, the picture all of a sudden became color from black and white. That's right. Gotcha. From then on, he would use his dual personality to try and get women in bed. Wow, that was like a immediate flick of a switch then. Yeah. Huh. But it didn't take away his awkwardness still. He put off too gross of a vibe that women wouldn't actually go for oh, him. Okay. So he was unsuccessful. But from that point on, he tried really hard. <laughs> I'll pretend to be nice That's to try right. and get you into bed. Yeah. He talks about, I was trying to fit in, I was trying to be nice, and nobody was noticing my efforts, because he wanted to have sex. <laughs> Isn't that every teenage boy everywhere? Yeah, probably. <laughs> Just kidding, I take that back. <laughs> so, so far, we've covered child abuse, sexual assault, animal torture, fire starting, really, all that's missing is a head injury, right? Yep, and you're going to tell me about one, I bet. Well, in 1973, in his final year of high school, while climbing a rope after wrestling practice, he fell almost the whole 25-foot distance <gasps> to the ground. It was one of the rare times that he had almost reached the top of the rope, and in a freak accident, maybe because of his eyes, the rope pulled free from the ceiling, <gasps> dropping Keith on his head. No, ironically, it was his foot. <laughs> what? You set me up to sound dumb. <laughs> That's what we're all expecting, though, right? A head yeah. injury. He did have this 25-foot fall, and he could have hit his head, but the biggest injury was to his foot. So his foot took the brunt of the fall. Yeah. So but even he if he hit his head after, it wouldn't have been as bad. No. It sounds like his foot was the most injured. <laughs> but in some reports, it does say his head. Oh. But his medical bills were for his foot. Okay. Mm -hmm. How scary. Climbing to the very top, and then it gives way. <laughs> All of his high school career, he had never made it to the top. It was, again, a point for other people teasing him. He almost makes it to the top and the <laughs> rope gives out. What's that song? When you try your best, but you can't succeed. <laughs> yeah. But his family would be awarded $30,000 in compensation from the school board for the accident oh, because of the injuries he sustained. So now he can pay rent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Give it to his dad. So Keith would go on to complete high school despite the injury. He received his diploma in 1973. Keith would claim that his father discouraged college, feeling that he wasn't smart enough. Les claims that Keith actually didn't have the grades to get in because he hadn't applied himself in school. So there's always this kind of two sides of the story between mm. Keith and his dad. Keith's IQ was tested later and found to be 101. So who knows what the actual reason was, but for whatever reason, he didn't go to post-secondary. Instead, he stayed near home working random jobs and continued his tumultuous relationship with his father and took his animal torture to a new level. Mm. After Les shot his aging beloved dog, dogs were no longer off limits to Keith's torture list. Les shot the dog? Mm-hmm. Oh. His dad shot his dog. 
And remember, this was his beloved friend. Right. That's why dogs weren't on his list before. Yeah. He would never hurt a dog because he had this beloved Duke that he slept with every night that he had raised from a pup. Yeah, and he was probably really his only friend. Mm-hmm. But Les shot him because he was aging and needed to be put down. That's Les's story. Keith's story is that his dad just shot him just to be mean to him. Hmm. So there's two differing stories, but it's one of those times that, again, Keith just gets to blame his dad. Right. But from this, all of a sudden, he had this urge to kill all dogs. He began searching them out and beating them with shovels and strangling them with his bare hands. (gasps) How did he not get attacked? I wonder if he used his kind of dual personality just to be nice enough, just enough to get them close enough. Oh. And then he would strangle them. That's a terrible thought. And again, it seems that it was just a coping mechanism for him to deal with whatever frustrations he felt. Yeah, because Duke had died Mm -hmm. or was murdered in his eyes. Yeah. The ways that Keith describes the torture he inflicted on animals is sickening. Yeah. But this was an absolute hobby for him. He's out searching for these dogs. Mm -hmm. It's not like the cat came across his path and he kicked him. Right. No, he actively searched them out. Oh. As he entered his 20s, Keith began gaining a little more restraint with his urges, and he had learned to use the two halves of his personality more to his advantage. In 1975, he met Rose Hook, an 18-year-old looking for a way out of her family home. She was charmed by the big man, and the two were married on August 2nd of that same year. Oh. By Keith's admission, it wasn't love. He had thought it would be an easy way to satisfy his sexual urges, and Rose had wanted an escape from her family. It turned out, though, that Rose was not interested in any of the rough stuff that turned Keith on, and he felt that the marriage was a mistake from the very beginning. Right from their wedding night, the couple would fight mostly about what stimulus Keith needed to satisfy his sexual urges. Oh, man. So that escalated quickly for him, too. But it does fit his profile, right? Because he gets off on violence. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it does make sense and it would happen pretty quickly. And being married, he would probably view her kind of as his property. Absolutely. And was quite disappointed when she wouldn't just submit to what he wanted her to do. Yeah. And he's thinking, um, this is why I married you. Yeah. Yikes. Throughout the course of their marriage, the couple would have three children and children seemed to change Keith for a time. He didn't want to end up like his dad, and it motivated him to try and hide some of his dark side. He vowed never to beat his children like his dad had done to him. Working as a long-range trucker made it easier because Keith was often on the road, and so he could hide his personality a lot from them, but he really did try. Hmm. His oldest daughter, Melissa, made several media appearances since her father's arrest describing the dual person that her father was. She would say, quote, I'm the oldest of three children, and my father was a really incredible man. He was six foot six and about 200 to 300 pounds. He towered over everybody. I thought he was almost godlike. He would walk in a room, and you couldn't help but notice his presence. Yeah, and other people referred to that as him being off. But she would also admit that there were times that her dad's dark side came through. Keith wasn't able to hide his continued animal torture from his children. Oh, no. The urge to kill was just too strong for him. Melissa recalls around the age of six, quote, I could see my brother shielding the cat, trying to protect it. But my dad grabbed the cat and put the cat on his lap and started petting it. Then all of a sudden, he took his huge hand and started to strangle it. (gasps) How traumatic for those kids. The cat's reaction was to fight for its life and it started to claw him. My dad was 
absolutely enjoying himself. I remember the smile on his face, and I could see blood coming off my dad's forearms, but it didn't seem to phase him. He just continued. Until all of a sudden, the cat went limp. Oh my goodness. That's horrific. Yeah. And it's their family cat. Crazy, right? Dirtbag. Another time, she reports she watched horrified as her dad hung stray kittens from the family's clothesline. She ran to get her mother, and when they returned, the kittens were dead on the ground. Her father was just watching, laughing. That's sadistic. Mm -hmm. Like, we've got some real issues going on here with Keith. And again, why aren't people seeking out help for this guy? Yeah. But it seems like he could hold it together for so long, and then he would just snap and do these crazy things, and everyone would be like, what the heck? Kind of out of the blue. And then he would go back to being kind of nice. Because he'd get it out of his system for a short time. Mm -hmm. Keith and Rose's marriage became even more fractured by the late 1980s, and the two divorced when Rose had started to suspect Keith of cheating on her while he was away from the home. Keith had recently returned to the trucking profession in Cheney, Washington, after having his dreams of joining the Royal Canadian Mounted Police crushed. He was told that he would never be accepted because of the injury he had suffered in high school. Right, on his foot. Mm -hmm. And so after this blow to his ego, because it was something that he wanted to do, at 35, he was feeling more frustrated with life than ever when Rose packed up the children and moved to Spokane, Washington, leaving him alone and a failure again. He would later admit to the journalist M. William Phelps that the divorce left him very angry at women. Oh, I bet. Mm -hmm. He had been cheating on her. Oh, I bet. <laughs> I didn't doubt that. Good that, for her, though. Yeah, absolutely. If my husband was behaving that way, I would want out. Yes. Yeah. And it didn't sound like it was a happy marriage ever. No. She had lasted 15 years. Yeah, I was surprised when you said, oh, they had three kids together. Yeah. I'm thinking, what? No, she stuck it out. Aww. Because again, he had this kind of dual personality where he could be really nice. And then in the bedroom and other places, he was not a nice person. Yeah. So that Christmas after his wife left with their kids, it wasn't a joyous one for Keith. He was separated from his kids and his divorce was almost finalized. He claims that he had sold most of his valuable possessions to buy Christmas gifts for his kids. And his current girlfriend that he had shacked up with after his wife left had left him for another man and was now demanding that Keith leave her house or pay rent with money he didn't have. <laughs> Could you imagine cheating on your boyfriend and being like, well, but you can stay, but you have to pay me rent? Yeah. Like, who would want to do that? Not that but we he, feel sorry for Keith because he had cheated on his wife with her, yeah. but... But he had nowhere else to go either. So does he stay? He stays for a bit with her. Yeah. This situation was just extremely frustrating for Keith. He didn't have the money to pay the rent. He didn't have anywhere else to go. And he's like living at the mercy of somebody else. Right. Really. Yeah. His wife's gone. His kids are gone. Mm -hmm. He can't be an RCMP officer. Life is not turning out the way Keith thought it would. Right. So to relieve the emotions that he was feeling, he purposely went out looking for stray cats to strangle. Oh, this is terrible. He actively uses it as a coping mechanism. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. Learn so, how to crochet, Keith. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do something else. <laughs> something productive that doesn't involve killing. Yeah. On the afternoon of January 21st, 1990, Keith went to the B&I Tavern in Portland, Oregon. There he met Tanya Bennett, a 21-year-old who had suffered a brain injury at birth and was lower functioning. She was a happy, unassuming person and had ran up and hugged Keith while he was playing pool at the bar. 
Keith brushed her off, figuring that she was just another woman looking to use him to buy her drinks. He finished playing pool and returned home. But while watching TV, he began to fantasize about the woman who had been so friendly at the bar. He fantasized about all the things he would do to her and was so turned on by these thoughts that he was compelled to return to the bar. Wow. He had a really active imagination. And the fantasies about raping her were just so powerful. Oh, it wasn't even just to have sex with her. It was to rape her. He wanted to rape her. Oh, no. Yeah. Because she was friendly to him. Yep. Oh, my gosh. He had attempted to rape a woman years before, but she had gotten away from him. Was she still at the bar? Tanya was walking out of the bar as he pulled (gasps) up. Oh, no. Keith invited her to dinner, telling her first that he had to stop at home to get the money. Oh, no. I'm really struggling to find any redeeming qualities about Keith. Well, I remember these are all his recounts. Yeah. It's so shocking. I think sometimes he builds the story so that it sounds shocking. Yeah, maybe. Who knows, though? I don't know. It's just so textbook, though, too. It is. You know what's happening next, right? Yeah. Keith acted out his rape fantasy when she followed him inside, refusing to let her leave when she sensed the danger that she had walked into. Oh, no. He overpowered her and dragged her to his mattress on the floor. Once he had pinned her, to Keith's surprise, she stopped resisting. This hadn't been the first time this poor woman was raped, and she just wanted this time to be over. Keith was more than willing to continue his abuse. He didn't care. Wow. Well, it was her way of protecting herself, probably. If I just give in, I'm not going to get beat or... And that's what she expected. Yeah. Was that I'll just let him finish and then he'll be done. And it's not a fair fight. Not at all. You know, she's this young woman and yeah, he's this giant brute of a man. Mm -hmm. Tanya only began to resist when Keith continued through several orgasms, not quitting. He claims. She began to fight back and demand he finish and take her out to eat. And take her out to eat? Mm -hmm. Because that's what he had promised her. And take her out to eat, not take me home? No. She wanted her payment for what he was doing to her. And that was her payment. Do they go out to eat? Oh no, she never leaves. Oh, no. Yeah. Keith said he preferred her when she was being subservient because it was building into his fantasy of keeping her as a sex slave, one that he could have complete control of. So when she started to, like, make demands and talk back, it wasn't his thing. So he's saying that's what she said. Mm -hmm. So we don't know if she really said, and take me out to eat. That's right. Yeah, because that doesn't seem... Unless you're using that as a ruse, you know, well, then let's go to eat, and then you're going to try and take off. But it does sound like... From the history that her mom gave, she had done that in the past. She was often taken advantage of and she had been pimped out before and used for sex. And you said she was lower functioning too. This poor woman was constantly taken advantage of. Like it wasn't the first time she was raped or used. And so that's why I do think that maybe she did say, okay, now take me out to eat. You've done this to me. Yeah, you've done this to me. Now you need to take me out. And it was... Because he was taking so long. Because yeah. Keith is like this marathon sexual person. Yeah, several. Wow. And again, remember, this is his recounting. That's true. Right? Guys always make it sound better. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but Keith didn't appreciate her demands for food before he was done with her. And that is the reason he provides for why he started to punch her. Was that he was just frustrated with her. And when that didn't knock her unconscious, he punched her again and again, his rage seeping out. Keith became frustrated because he had enjoyed sex with his unconscious girlfriend in the past because he held all the control during the sexual experience. But Tanya wasn't submitting to that part of the fantasy. She just wouldn't pass out like he wanted her to. 
So even after delivering 20 punches to the face to this petite woman, she was still conscious and crying. (gasps) She was a fighter. Mm -hmm. That poor thing. Her face was caved in with a broken nose, (gasps) a broken jaw, and broken teeth. Oh my gosh. But she was still awake. Growing physically tired from beating her again and again, Keith started to realize the severity of what he had done and decided that getting the needed help for Tanya was out of the question. So he decided to end her misery like his father had taught him to do with stray animals. Well, by looking at her and realizing the damage, he's probably thinking, I'm going to get into big trouble for this. Mm -hmm. He strangled her to death with his practice bare hands. Keith now had to figure out what to do next. His inspiration came from the Perry Mason show. He knew he needed to establish an alibi, so he returned to the bar for some drinks and made sure people remembered that he was there and that they seen him leaving alone. After drinks, he returned to clean up. Before moving Tanya, Keith masturbated all over her lifeless body. <gasps> That's just such an act of degradation. Mm-hmm. That's so disgusting. So disgusting. Yeah, he's so vile. He thought about having sex with her, but then when he touched her, she was cold and clammy and that turned him off. But not enough that he couldn't masturbate all over her. Ugh. He then collected the body and all of her belongings to carefully dispose of them. His planning included checking his taillights and filling up on gas, even remembering to take a change of shoes so that when he dragged her body into the woods, he could get rid of those shoes and put on a new pair of shoes. Right. His thinking was that the bad guys were always caught by the smallest errors. That's what he learned on the Perry Mason's show anyway. It is true, though. Mm -hmm. Like... When you're talking about his IQ, he obviously, he's not dumb. No. For him to like be thinking this through. Mm -hmm. Not many think to bring a change of shoes and get rid of the shoes that you were wearing. Yeah. He loved detective shows. He wanted to be a cop. And so he knew how to hide his tracks. Using a white nylon rope that he had tied around her neck earlier, he drugged Tanya's body from the home into the car and then drove to Crown Point Vista House. Once he had chosen a sufficient spot, he drug her body another 60 feet off the road into the Columbia Gorge. Wow. In the future, he would drive his kids past this same location and make odd comments about knowing how to get away with murder. What? Mm -hmm. That's what his daughter Melissa would recount later, that she recalls her dad driving past that spot and saying like, oh, I know how to get away with murder. When viewed in hindsight, his daughter believes that he was trying to relive the thrill of the crime by getting close to the spot again. Yeah, and probably the added thrill that his kids were with him. Mm -hmm. Despite Keith's efforts to hide the body, Tanya was found the next morning by a cyclist, but she wouldn't be identified for eight more days. Police were thrown off the trail by the savageness of the beating and wrongly assumed that the act must have been personal by someone who had had a previous relationship with Tanya. Yeah. So they weren't looking for strangers. They were looking for somebody who knew her. The case veered off even further from the truth when a 57-year-old woman, Laverne, confessed that her boyfriend had picked up Tanya Bennett in a tavern and driven her to a ravine above the Columbia Gorge and killed her. What? Mm-hmm. Was she just trying to get back at her boyfriend for something? She was. What? Yep. <laughs> When police doubted her story, she went as far to implicate herself, saying that she held the rope around the victim's neck while her boyfriend committed acts of rape and murder. Laverne even produced a cutout section of the fly front of a pair of Levi's jeans and led police to the spot where she and her lover had dumped the body. 
she knew where the body was dumped. Mm -hmm. She had gotten all of her facts from the media and used them to convince the police that her boyfriend had murdered Tanya. What did her boyfriend do to get her that cross with him? She was trying to frame him so that she could escape his abuse. Oh. So she was being abused and she thought this was the way out. But she didn't anticipate that she would have to go so far to convince the police of it. Her boyfriend denied the accusation but failed two lie detector tests. Because he's a dirtbag too. (laughs) Yep. And Laverne had told the police enough facts that the police arrested them both. Plus, they were finding evidence to collaborate this made-up story. Police reported finding a scribbled note in the boyfriend's possession. T. Bennett, a good piece. Oh. Mm -hmm. Did the girlfriend put that in his possession? Yes. (laughs) In his possession. The police... (laughs) No, it's good. The police also believed that his light brown hair matched a strand found on Tanya's arm. Oh. And so they felt that they had all this evidence, so they arrested them. Keith was shocked by this turn of events and had mixed emotions about it. On one hand, he was relieved that the police were looking in another direction. And on the other hand, he was upset that he was not getting the immediate attention. Yeah, because he's the middle child who always gets overlooked. That's right. His need for attention won, and he drew a smiley face on a Greyhound bus depot men's room wall in Livingston, Montana, over hundreds of miles from his girlfriend's home. On the wall, he wrote, I killed Tanya Bennett. January 21st, 1990, in Portland, Oregon, I beat her to death, raped her, and I loved it. Yes, I'm sick, but I enjoy myself too. People took the blame, and I'm free. And then signed it with a smiley face. A few days later in Umatilla, Oregon, he left a second note in a truck stop in a men's room. This time, the note stated, I killed Tanya Bennett in Portland. Two people got the blame, so I can kill again. When those did not get a response, he began writing letters to the media and the authorities. He really wants some recognition. Mm -hmm. A few newspapers did carry a short story about the discovery, but most did not consider the notes credible. It wasn't even introduced at Laverne's January 1991 trial. Really? She had recanted her confession in court, but the jury found her guilty anyway, and she was sentenced to (gasps) 15 years to life. That's scary. Uh Uh-huh. Her boyfriend watched her be convicted and decided to plead guilty to avoid the death penalty that he was up against. He received a life sentence. Okay, (laughs) for one, how terrifying that you can get convicted when you actually didn't commit this crime. You had nothing to do with it. No. But Laverne had set it up so perfectly that she shot herself in the foot. She didn't think that she would be going to jail. Yeah, that is total karma. Come and bite her in the butt. Yep. And from the police reports from the police officer that took Laverne into custody and actually had to arrest her, he was like, this feels wrong. And he said he never got over that feeling of like, this is wrong. This isn't the person. This isn't a murderer. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't. No. She was trying to escape an abusive relationship and chose a poor way to get out of it. Her mistake was saying, I was there with the rope and assisted. Mm -hmm. But the police weren't believing her story, and so she had to keep adding details to make them believe her. And she added too many details, and then she got charged for being an accessory. That's wild. Mm -hmm. And then he gets away with it. Yeah. Do they find out later and let them out of jail? Yeah. Okay. It would take years and several dead women before the notes signed with the smiley face would actually be taken seriously. It seems that Keith, even when he was trying to be noticed, he was still invisible, just like he was when he was a child. (laughs) So they spent quite a few years in prison then. Five. And good thing that her boyfriend wasn't sent to death. 
mm-hmm. and that that had happened before Easy, right? they found out the truth. Yeah. yeah. So never cry wolf, listeners. Just don't do it. Don't say you have anything to do with any murder. <laughs> Man. While he was happy about not being a suspect, he was not pleased about someone else getting the credit for his kill and the media not giving him his due attention. And even saying, like, I'm not getting my proper credit. Mm -hmm. Like, no, you mean blame. Yes. Like, you shouldn't be credited for this. No. He would continue to leave random confession notes for police and the media to find throughout his killing spree. Later in 1994, Oregonian reporter Phil Stanford would coin the nickname Happy Face Killer for the letter's authors. But Keith would remain invisible. Hmm. Just a few months after getting away with Tanya's murder, Keith was emboldened to fulfill his urges again. Around 10 p.m. on Thursday, April 12, 1990, in a shopping center parking lot, In Mount Shasta, next to the I-5 corridor, Keith was approached by an intoxicated woman carrying an infant. Both the woman and the child ended up in Keith's car, where a conversation started. An intoxicated woman carrying an infant? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh. Keith recounts that the woman introduced herself as Jean and told him her baby was her six-month-old son. During this conversation, Keith told her all about himself, his name, about where he worked and where he was headed. Their conversation turned sexual and they drove to a remote location. During an act of oral sex while the infant lay in the back seat, Jean stopped having second thoughts about what she was doing with a stranger while her husband was at home. Oh, she's married even. Mm -hmm. She demanded to be driven home. Keith was not impressed with her newfound conscience. He forced her to finish the act, pushing her head down and choking her. When she started screaming at him after, he grew enraged and put her in a headlock and attempted to break her neck. Keith failed to gain enough leverage in the small confines of his vehicle and was unsuccessful. The woman's pleas to not hurt the baby brought Keith out of his rage and he began to realize that if he killed her, he would have to deal with the infant as well. He had always prided himself on never laying a hand on his children like his father had and he had no desire to hurt this baby. So he returned the woman and her child to the shopping center and took off. She was the only victim to get away. Because of her baby. Mm Mm-hmm. The woman, whose name Keith had not remembered correctly, was Dawn Slagle, and she was 21 at the time of the attempted murder. Years later, in an interview, she told Keith's daughter a slightly different version of events than the one Keith had told in his confession to the police. Oh. Dawn says that she had asked Keith to take her to the bathroom, and instead he drove further into the forest. There, he started attacking her and trying to break her neck. By her recollection, the infant who was on her lap was thrown onto the floor of the car during the struggle. There, Keith attempted to kill the baby by stomping on his head. (gasps) Thankfully, he was unsuccessful and the mother grabbed the infant and pleaded for their lives. That's when she saw what she describes as a switch flip and Keith's countenance changed before her eyes. Keith stopped the attack and now, more in control of his emotions, insisted on driving them back home because it was cold outside. Wow. Once released, Dawn went straight to the police. Keith was arrested at gunpoint in Corning, California because he had told Dawn so much about himself. Right. The police had no trouble in finding him. He was questioned at the scene and was able to convince the cops that his version of events was the real one by pointing out the ridiculousness of telling a woman he intended to murder his personal information and then driving her home afterwards. Wow. So was there any injury on the baby? Not in the police reports. Okay. And the other thing is, I've heard that before in other cases where it's like something comes over them. Like Mm -hmm. you said, when his countenance changed, like the flip of a switch, they can be almost in this like trance-like state. Yeah. 
But the police rode up, arrested him, gunpoint, everything. And then by the end of their conversation with him, he was uncuffed and just asked to go speak to the detective at the Chitasta Police Department, which he immediately did, sticking to his version of the events. And his version was apparently more believable than Dawn's, and he was released. That's crazy. So he admits to sexually assaulting this woman. Mm -hmm. And they're like, okay, well, at least you weren't trying to kill her. And you were being nice enough to take her home. So we'll let you go. Well, there was a charge filed against him for sexual assault for forcing the oral sex. So he copped to that, but said that when she said he put her in a headlock, he said that they had just struggled. Oh. And it wasn't really attempted murder. And then he's telling them, why would she allow me to drive her home after? Like, does that make any sense? If I had wanted to murder her, if that was my intent, why would I tell her everything about me? Like, she led you right to me. Because you thought she was going to be dead. Yeah. But he used it to his advantage. Which kind of shows premeditation on his part, too. That it wasn't just, all of a sudden, I'm just going to, like, get the urge and kill you. Mm -hmm. No, I'm going to tell you this stuff because I'm confident enough that you're not going to be able to tell anybody about it. Yeah. So he was released on his own reconnaissance and just asked to attend court at a later date. (laughs) Instantly, he fled and there was a felony warrant issued for his arrest. Yeah. He took off. He was later arrested for that outstanding warrant in Iowa at a weight check station after they ran his name in the National Crime Information Center database. Is that a common thing to do at a truck stop? It must be at the weigh stations. Oh. Yeah. But the charges were reduced to a misdemeanor by that time, and that made the cost of extraditing him too expensive. So the charges were eventually exonerated, and so they just let him go. Oh, my Lanta. So many times where he could have been stopped. Yes. This experience taught Keith a very valuable lesson. Not to stop strangling women and thank his lucky stars for his good fortune, but that a woman left alive goes to the police. Oh, The close call had scared Keith, and he repressed his urges to kill. He took up with his girlfriend again, and their active sex life kept the monster from rearing its ugly head. But the sex two to three times a day was only a temporary fix because the thrill just wasn't the same anymore now that he had killed. Well, he obviously had a lot to repress. Mm -hmm. A few months later, Keith met his next victim, a woman he claimed to be named Claudia. They met at a truck stop when she approached him for a ride. After a couple stops, she started to demand to be paid for the sex that she was supplying Keith with, something he had already laid down the rules about. He didn't pay. She wasn't worth it. So he had already had sex with her and then said, not good enough. I'm not going to pay you. Yeah. She kept pestering him about being paid, and he felt that she was just after drugs and wanted him to pay for them. Keith found himself again in a position where he felt justified in killing somebody else. She was just being a nuisance. This time, he was more practiced and more focused on playing out his fantasies. He duct taped her to the side of the bunk and repeatedly raped her. Then he escalated to a game that he called the killing game. He would strangle her until she passed out and then wait for her to wake up again and then repeat the process. After the fourth time, she didn't wake up anymore. Keith drove around with the dead body in the sleeper of his truck for the next several hours even having a nap on the same bed that her body was still in when he grew tired. The same bed that her body's in? Wow. He is so vile. Mm-hmm. And if it was because she was going to buy drugs with the money that he owed her, that's none of your business. If she wanted to buy drugs with the money, she could buy drugs with the money. 
He had this thing about drugs. He did not like women on drugs. It's a repeated theme that he just says, oh, well, they want the money for drugs, so I'm not paying them for the sex. What a dirtbag. Yeah. But again, that's that sense of control. Mm -hmm. Feeling even that he has the right to say what they can spend their money on. Yeah. While he continued on his driving route, he looked for a place to hide the body and had several encounters with unsuspecting police officers along the way. Oh, Claudia's body was found on August 30th, 1992 in Blythe, California, where the dirtbag Keith had dumped her unceremoniously in the brambles of a ravine. Just no regard for her life at all. One of the most disturbing things about this case was an interview I watched with Keith's daughter, Melissa, years later. She recalled once that she had visited with her dad on a rare occasion, and she had cozied up on the bunk of her dad's truck while he drove, and she had found a roll of duct tape under his pillow. (gasps) While she found it odd, at the same time, she just kind of chalked it up to it being there because there wasn't a lot of storage place and because things just were kept in random places. And dads always have duct tape under their pillows. Well, if it's in the cab of his truck, he could. So she actually found this duct tape, and it was around the time that he had murdered this person. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it was the same role. That is eerie. So disturbing. A month later, in September 1992, Cynthia Lynn Rose, a 32-year-old, suffered a very similar fate. Keith claims that she had the nerve to climb into his truck uninvited when he had slept at the truck stop. And so he just Hmm. decided to rape and strangle her as well. Keith became more and more confident in his game of death. In November that same year, he raped and strangled Lorianne Pentland, a 26-year-old from Salem, Oregon. According to Keith, she attempted to double the fees she charged for the sex that he had engaged in with her. He had spent over an hour of her time. And so she's like, I spent longer with you than I do with most men. So you need to now pay me $80. And he's like, oh, no, we agreed on 40. When he didn't want to pay her, she threatened to call the police and he strangled her to silence her threats. So it sounds like were there women that he like sex workers that he had picked up and then had the proper exchange of sex for money and then let them be? Yep. It was a common thing that he would. He called them lot lizards. Lot lizards? Lot lizards. What a creep. Yeah. So there were women that just hang around truck stops and provide sex. And so he calls them lot lizards. That is so derogatory. Mm -hmm. Okay. If they get out of hand or do something that angers him, then they deserve it and he'll do it according to him. Yeah. Or if there's one that he sees that he likes while he's eating at the restaurant at the truck stop. Just if he happens to get the urge. Mm -hmm. It's surprising to me that he didn't do it to all of them. Well, and these are the only ones that we know about. So there are times during his confessions that, like I said, he claims up to 166 murders. And there are lots of unnamed Jane Doe's that have police have found in ravines and ditches that they don't have enough information on it to actually say, yes, he was the one that killed them. Right. But it coincides with the timeline and the area. Mm-hmm. Okay. But again, not enough evidence to convict him on. Okay. And for some of them, like sometimes it was difficult even to connect the missing person to the people he was claiming because he wasn't getting their names right. He didn't bother to learn their names. Right. Well, and it sounds like sometimes his encounter with them is not that long. No, very, very short. Yeah, he can meet them at one moment and they could be dead an hour or two later. Yeah, and that's one of the things that allows him to continue to murder over and over. It's not until he breaks that pattern that he actually gets caught. Okay. 
His next victim was found in June 1993, a Jane Doe on the side of California State Route 152, about a half hour south of San Jose. Dressed in denim at the time, the victim was known only as Blue Pacheco. It wasn't until April of this year that she was identified with genetic genealogy. Really? Mm -hmm. She was identified as Patricia Skipple. She had accepted Keith's invitation to lunch and went for a ride in his truck the previous March. Keith played the death game with her four to five times by his count. That is so torturous. Mm -hmm. And that's amazing, though, about the genealogy testing. Yeah, there's a whole program for identifying Jane Doe's. Yeah, I learned about that at CrimeCon, actually. So interesting that they can do that. Oh, yeah. What closure that can bring to some of those families then that have been missing their loved ones for years Mm -hmm. and wondering if they're still alive. I mean, it would be sad to find out that your loved one had died in this manner, but still closure and knowing actually what happened. Mm -hmm. In the end of 1993, Keith met Julia Willingham, and it seemed for a short time he might be reformed. They had a relationship, and I'm going to put air quotes on that because it was an odd relationship, on, off, on, off, and they had sex with other people. and So it was very volatile. Yeah, it was an interesting relationship, but it did continue for over a year, and he was able to control his urges during this time. Okay. To entertain himself after they broke up, he continued his letter writing campaign, and this is when it really picked up. This time, he sent a letter to Washington County outlining even more details about Tanya's murder and claiming responsibility, and once again, he was ignored. No one wanted to take the dirtbag seriously. He had even told his friend Billy that he had been killing women and couldn't stop, but his friend had just changed the subject, thinking that it was just Keith being weird again. That's so wild. It's like he has this cry for help. Yes. Like, someone catch me. Mm -hmm. Do you think it was the happy faces? How many dirtbag murderers are going to sign their letters with a happy face? Yeah, I don't know what it was, but for whatever reason, it took a long time for somebody to actually take him seriously. Like if he had signed them with some type of satanic symbol, maybe they would have taken him seriously. Like I wonder how much the happy face played. That is so true. And does he ever say why he chose the happy face? He was just in a good mood. Oh. He had just found out that the other people had been arrested for his crime. And he was feeling these conflicting emotions that he was happy he wasn't going to jail. But at the same time, he needed to claim it in some way Mm -hmm. that it was his murder. Yeah, he wanted recognition. Yeah. You dirtbag, you don't deserve to be happy. No, no smiley faces for you. So in April 1994, he sent multiple letters to the Oregonian, a large newspaper claiming ownership of different murders and giving specifics. Again, not taken seriously. What? Mm -hmm. How can the police not take it seriously when there's specifics? Especially if he's including information that's not been covered by the press. Remember, he's committing these murders over multiple states. True, but is he not sending the letters to states that these murders have taken place in? No, not always. Okay. Yeah. In the latter half of 1994, he began setting fields on fire to watch them burn and watch firefighters struggle to put out what he had created. And it was, again, just a way to elicit that thrill response for him. Mm -hmm. We often hear about serial killers lighting fires and torturing animals as children, but this is him still continuing into his adult life. But it is when he's trying to suppress the urge to kill. Yeah. So he needs something to replace that. So it does actually make sense to me that that's what he would be doing. Mm -hmm. That that would be an outlet, a way for him to try and suppress the urge to kill. And again, it seems like he knew ways to suppress it. Like I need need something else to fulfill this. 
scourge. Yeah. Because that'll give me a high for a little while. Yeah. It's interesting, though, that, you know, he's saying he's so self-reflective. Like, why didn't you walk into the police station and ask for help? Why didn't you go to a doctor or an institution and say, I need help? Well, I think this self-reflection that he seems like, oh, I did this because of this comes after the fact that because he gets convicted in 1995, which is actually after that kind of golden age of serial killers. Mm -hmm. All the books have been out by then. I think he was starting to read about serial killers because he was this detective fanatic. And so I think that he, again, justifies his actions by saying like this is why I was doing it or this is what I was feeling right to like make him seem more like that psychopath and that he fits that media image so then he'll get more attention or to justify himself in some way Mm -hmm. so I'm not really sure if he actually felt these things at the time or this is just his storytelling afterwards right but they do say actions speak louder than words and if he was actually setting these fires then maybe he was feeling that way yeah I'm just not sure he was as self-reflective as he makes it sound right So for more than a year, he used arson and letter writing to get his thrills. But on September 14, 1994, another Jane Doe was found in Crestview, Florida. Keith couldn't even remember her name. He thinks it was Susan or something similar. He had no regard for the woman's lives that he took. His only thought for this woman was to tag her with two plastic ties around her neck so that he could use it as another detail in his letters. So purposely planting stuff now that he can bring up later. Mm Mm-hmm. In January, he met Angela's surprise and he became infatuated with her and spent a considerable amount of time with her. That was until she told him that she was pregnant and didn't know who the father was, but was going to make her way back to her ex-boyfriend and was only using him to get back to Indianapolis. (gasps) Her impatience with him for taking a break while in a snowstorm would be what sealed her fate. Keith strangled her. Oh, man. Mm Mm-hmm. She was upset that he had pulled over during a snowstorm instead of Mm -hmm. continuing to drive, but to get her to her ex-boyfriend. Yeah. Oh, my. But he was afraid that someone might be able to identify her and remember that he had been with her. So he secured her body to the undercarriage of his truck in a way that her face and hands dragged on the pavement and started to drive. No way. Mm -hmm. What is the point of that? Her body was dragged against the pavement. It was torn apart. It erased all of her fingerprints and dental records, everything. Oh, that's so bad. It is. That's how he made it so that she wouldn't be identified. Yeah, that is shocking. Mm -hmm. He had gotten the idea from a story that he heard about somebody tying their dog to the back of their bumper and forgetting it was there and taking off. And when they actually realized or remembered the dog, they pulled over, but there was nothing left of the dog. No, and there was probably not much left of her. Like going those speeds on a highway? Nope. And he said that they were hitting people's cars, but they didn't (gasps) realize that because it was such little pieces. That's horrific. Mm -hmm. And he just thought it was this genius plan. That was his view of it. So eventually he did have to pull over. He removed what was left of her body and he did dispose of it in a ditch as well. But there was nothing left to identify her. Did they only identify her after when he confesses? Mm -hmm. wow yeah so he definitely did do that one Mm -hmm. he's evil 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 to do that to another human being and he goes back and forth in his recountings of his crimes about like it sounds like he's trying to reach out for help like you said and then doing such drastic things to cover up his crimes yeah it's bizarre and i hope that that image haunted him oh no it seems like he's quite proud of it 
Oh my goodness. Yeah. Is he still alive? Uh-huh. He is? Uh-huh. On March 3rd, Keith had a chance meeting with his old girlfriend, Julie. They hooked up again, and just like all the other women he picked up on the road, eight days later, her body was found along a Washington State road. She had been strangled. He dumped her body on the opposite side of the Columbia River that he had dumped Tanya on. Oh. Too lazy to even find a new location. It's like, well, this worked last time. Yeah. But he doesn't even really care that they get found. No, not anymore. No. nobody's paying attention to him. Yeah. And it almost seems like he's getting lazier and lazier as he goes along. Well, he's probably feeling more and more invincible. Mm -hmm. Like, I can do this and get away with it. Look how many women I've killed. Yeah, for over five years, he does this. And I'm even mailing in letters saying that I killed these other women and they're still not putting it together. And giving specific details. Yeah, yeah, of course he's feeling invincible. Well, fortunately, after Julie's murder, Keith became paranoid that the police were on to him. And he was right. Police were able to identify her and began to ask who she had been seen with. And the one name that came up, Keith Jesperson, the six foot six, 300 pound long haul trucker from Salem, Washington. When questioned by the police, Keith denied everything and they let him go, but not before taking DNA samples. Oh, good. When Keith left the police station, he knew he was caught. Even if the police were releasing him right now, all of his victims had his DNA all over them. That night, he attempted suicide, but was unsuccessful. He would try again the next night. After his second failed attempt, he wrote his brother Brad a letter confessing his crimes and apologizing for the way he was. His paranoia was increasing, and on March 30th, Keith called the detective investigating Julie's murder and confessed to murdering her. Did he give his name? Like, Mm -hmm. he's like, okay. Yep. He felt that the confession might help with the leniency in his sentence. So he thought, I'll confess to this one murder, and they wouldn't connect him with all the other ones. So is he actually, do you think he's feeling remorse? Like, why did he try to kill himself? Sounds like maybe that the gig was up. Like, I'm going away for a long time now because he had killed so many women. Right. But rather than just flee, like to me, he just seems like this dirtbag so far that would have just taken off. Let's move to a new state, new country even. Yeah. But with him trying to, like, I'm wondering if there is some validity in what he has said with trying to stop himself by lighting fires and doing these things, handing in the letters. And then if he was actually sincerely trying to kill kill himself and then to call the police and turn himself in maybe there was some regret maybe maybe it was part of that dual personality because what he does next doesn't sound like he's remorseful at all okay not that i'm making excuses for him because he is vile through and through and that's what his daughter describes in her interviews and her documentaries is that he was this dual personality person and so maybe there was a part of his personality that was like please somebody help me that's why he told his friend that's why he wrote the letter to his brother that he was just trying to get help he was trying to contain his urges that's why he was torturing animals and starting fires as horrific as all that is but then there's this other part that just doesn't care and feels proud that he's getting away with murder Is he ever diagnosed with schizophrenia or a split personality disorder or anything like that? No, I couldn't find any psychological reports on him. But it would be interesting because I think there's something going on with him right from a child. There's lots of theories. Yeah. But I haven't seen any like actual of his reports. Nothing definitive. No. So while in prison, though, for Julie's murder, the police obtained the letter that he had written to his brother shortly before his arrest. So his brother turned in the letter. Good. And what the letter said is that I'm sorry I've turned out this way. I have been a killer for five years and have killed eight people and assaulted more. And the police started investigating these other murders. In custody, Keith started to give details about the deaths of his victims to police. Now he's the gig's up. 
they have my other letter. They're already looking into it. So he just started confessing. Well, and he was wanting to turn himself in at this point. Mm-hmm. He told them that he was the happy face killer that everyone had ignored for over five years. The notoriety wasn't what he expected. During his transfer back to Portland, he expressed disappointment when there was no media waiting for him at the airport. So this makes me question then, like, is he doing this for the notoriety? Right? Yeah. The attention. And that's what makes me question. Maybe he is making some of this stuff up after the fact. Yeah. Of the, he has to make it sound like a really good story. When he gave interviews, he would continue to add more and more details about each of his crimes so that police would start looking in different areas and for different people. In media interviews, he would make fun of the police for not catching him sooner and acting proud that he had outwitted them. With every statement he made, police compared the details to missing persons reports and Jane Doe cases. Keith's claims and mashup of details made sorting through his confession difficult to prosecute. Most of the details he provided were just fragments of truth and snippets of information from his memory. There were countless unsolved Jane Doe cases across the states where he had picked up women to rape and strangle. But police had a hard time creating a substantiated case for many of them. Keith's family tried to understand what he had done and why he had acted the way he did in front of the media. His younger sister made the statement, Keith is just trying to get attention. He never got a whole lot when he was growing up. His father had a nervous breakdown trying to figure out where he had gone wrong. All he kept saying was that he raised five children and only one of them turned out to be a murderer, but he raised them all the same. I just did a case where the dad said that. And so that's why I think was his dad feeling responsible because he had abused him. But all of his siblings report that his dad was a good guy. And that his punishments were kind of in part with what was going on at the time. Like everybody was getting the strap then. Right. But it doesn't sound like all of the kids were treated equally either. They are saying he got the brunt of it. Yeah. Keith did not hide the fact that he believed his father was the reason he killed. So in all of his media interviews, he totally blames his father. Keith enjoyed the attention from all the confessions he was making. And at one point, he had claimed to have murdered 166 women. One of the women he claimed to murder was just to help out her husband, who had been convicted and was now serving time for that murder. Keith had only confessed to this one because the husband promised to pay him $10,000 when he was released. Oh, Mm -hmm. well, I could totally see that. Other prisoners like, hey, since you already have this many, so could you just add this one on? Mm-hmm. conniving little buggers in prison yep wow but as his convictions and sentences started adding up he started to recant some of his confessions and honestly ten thousand dollars really you're in jail like why would you take that deal you- yeah <laughs> his stories changed and so did the number of his victims that he claimed to have so over time he started to kind of pare back and be like wait a minute they're trying to convict me of all of these murders and i'm getting life sentences for all of them right and so he started to pare back how many he claimed to kill He is currently serving six life sentences without the possibility of parole at the Oregon State Penitentiary, and his earliest possible release date is not until March 2063. Which would make him how old then? 108. 108. Yeah. Okay, then I'm okay with that. (laughs) But honestly, why not eight life sentences? He was convicted of all eight murders. So... Right now, they have connected him securely to eight murders, but not all the states have chosen to prosecute him. Oh, yeah. Really? No. Some of the states, because it's so costly to prosecute him, they know he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life. Right. That why go through the extra cost of having another trial? Because they have to extradite him from his prison in Oregon. Wow. 
I mean, I get that. Like, okay, adding another life sentence, but it still it feels like that justice for that family. I yeah. still feel like it should be done. I feel like our tax dollars are spent on way worse things. Yeah. But at least we know he's never getting out. No, he's never getting out. And there's no chance of parole. So how does he spend his time? He spends it communicating with investigative reporters and authors. He started a website that offered a self-starter serial killer kit. <gasps> no. Mm-hmm. How can that be allowed? I don't know. From prison. Yes. He's making this website. Mm-hmm. Okay, who's in charge? We need their <laughs> phone number, honestly. <laughs> like, if you can find that information, I'm sure the jail and prison knows that information. Yeah. I'd almost be scared to mm-hmm. see what he would put on there, like, in his sick mind. Yeah. He's given countless interviews in which he boasts of ever-changing numbers of victims. Of course he is. Mm-hmm. He's even been a guest lecturer at the Duquesne University for their forensic investigation class, crime lab scientist, and other law enforcement specialist, where students are always surprised by his soft-spoken voice that describes his murders as simply taking care of business. Wow. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, as a student, that would be fascinating mm-hmm. to learn from him. He wanted the notoriety. And he did. Now he gets it. Does he go in person or is it through? Through phone. Through phone. Okay. Through phone and video. Yeah. That's good. He says that his murders weren't something that he wanted to do, but it was something like a task, something that had to happen because I put myself in that position and the women had angered him. But that does not give you the right to take their life. Yeah. Like, what a self-entitled dirtbag. Like, honestly. Mm-hmm. Wait for this next statement. He says, it's no different than going to the store and buying a jug of milk. If I have to go to the store and buy a jug of milk, I have to do it. You put yourself in a state of mind. This has to happen. It's not going away. You can't back down. And it became a nonchalant thing because I got away with it. Yeah, I get that there's the thrill that he thought that he needed filled, but killing a woman, strangling, raping, taking her to the brink of death and bringing her back and taking her to the brink of death and bringing her back. That is not the same as needing to buy a jug of milk. No, you can go without milk. But that's how he describes his urges to these students. And it shows by comparing women to a jug of milk, he's just women are objects to him Mm -hmm. that he is entitled to. No, he's just not taking responsibility. Well, I just had to do it. No, Mm -hmm. you didn't. You creepy dirtbag. You didn't. And it's not your daddy's fault. You don't think so? No. I don't think so either. No, how many people have been abused? Honestly, like that is Mm -hmm. a sad number. But most people who are abused, and we've heard way worse cases of abuse. Yes. Most people don't grow up then to become a serial killer. I think there's something wrong with his brain, honestly. Because Mm -hmm. from age five to start murdering animals yeah something had to be wrong fundamentally in his brain and for so many people to notice how socially awkward he was right Mm -hmm. and to never fit in and no impulse control yeah you know quick to anger I think there's something yeah and I'm shocked that they haven't tested him or if we'll find out later yeah but it does sound like he was a little bit of a dual personality for sure. That's just my thought anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something going on with him. Mm-hmm. But that is the case of the stereotypical but invisible woman-hating dirtbag serial killer Keith Hunter Jesperson. Dirtbag extraordinaire. Absolutely. My mind is still blown that he was allowed to make a website on how to be a serial killer. It's crazy. Yeah, he just wants that fame and notoriety. And he's so entitled that even the littlest thing sets him off. He was even blaming all of his victims. Every single one of his victims, even now today when he gives reports, it was all their fault. He was totally justified in what he did. Yeah, so he's using his father as a scapegoat then. Mm -hmm. But speaking of fathers, you should be bringing us a Father's Day case next week. I already have one in the works. 
But until then, we hope you have a wonderful week. See ya. Bye. Did I say that right? No. I don't think so. His father would reverse, not reverse, but reserve. I can do this. Hold on. Are you sure? <laughs> True that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, don't let that in there. <laughs> so does that make sense? Oh, wait. Say it again. That. It, oh, my goodness. Keith had laid. Keith recounts. You look like you're drunk. You're like, so Keith, Keith had learned. There was this one time. When Keith, when Keith. Do you need to pause? You need to take a, you need another chocolate. Boyfriend's position, position. Boyfriend's profession. No, not profession. Possession. Possession. Recording at night is hard. It is hard from rearing it's rugly rugly head <laughs> you rugly <laughs> <sighs> middle child syndrome is definitely a thing <laughs> absolutely hey we're live pal and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast tales from the estate each week we talk about our top five favorite somethings my beautiful wife caitlin likes to share all sorts of random facts yeah did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, uh-huh. thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.